Inflation just took a massive spike higher. Just released data shows that core inflation has risen to rates not seen since the early 1990s. Now, fast rising inflation is a wealth killer, draining the purchasing power of your income and savings, while at the same time crushing you under a rising cost of living. How worried should you be about it now? To answer that question, we've brought in an expert, a former advisor to the Federal Reserve, whose trillions of dollars in monetary stimulus over the past year have been a primary cause of the spiking inflation we're seeing today. The biggest risk to the economy right now is the potential for stagflation, because we are not going to see the, another stimulus 4.0. Hello, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. And we have a great guest for you today, folks. Uh, today's guest is the CEO and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence, which publishes analysis for portfolio managers and financial education for regular retail investors, uh, like most of the folks watching this video. Prior to Quill, she spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas, where she served as advisor to President Richard Fisher throughout the financial crisis. Her work at the Fed focused on financial stability and the e efficacy of unconventional monetary policy. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, unconventional monetary policy. Uh, Danielle, I can't think of a more appropriate way to refer to the times in which we now live. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, 13 years into unconventionality. <laughs> yeah. so, sounds a little bit like Nixon's uh, temporarily uh, suspending uh, the, uh, the gold window, right? And we're still sitting here waiting for it to reopen uh, 50 years later. Um, all right, Danielle, well, look, before we get into the details, um, let's just start at a very, very high level. Um, I don't want to introduce any biases, which is why I like to start with this question. What is your current assessment of today's economy and the financial markets? So uh, it, it feels as if, uh, as if we're in a time compression chamber right now. We've seen certain uh, data cycles carried out in the economic data that would normally span three to four years occur within a 12 month window. So a lot of it has to do with how violent the shutdown was and its impact on the economy. But the, the, the rapidity with which we've bounced back really speaks much more to fiscal and monetary spending combined being higher than they were at any point, including the Great Depression, the Great Financial Crisis since World War II. But again, we're not at war. So we have thrown more stimulus at this economy than anything, anybody who is alive uh, today has ever experienced. And it's somewhat infuriating to me to talk about, excuse me, to hear a lot of the talking heads regale on how the strength of the, I mean, I, you have to say to yourself, how can the recovery not be strong? How is it possible that prices not be Right, you know, just going right off the rails. How in the world, how, how, give me the counter argument as to what kind of a backdrop with the, with the most aggressive fiscal and monetary spending in, in US history outside of World War II that we've ever seen. All right, so it's sort of like uh, uh, people at the feast uh, regaling the guests with uh, how much food everybody is able to eat in the dead of winter. 
um, not acknowledging that that they've just taken all of the seed corn and they're eating it all in one fell swoop. So of course, bellies are full today, but what are the repercussions going to be tomorrow? Um, so let, let's let's trundle into the the stimulus side of things. Uh, and you said what's what's you know sort of unique about this moment in history is we're having unprecedented both monetary and fiscal stimulus at the same time. Um, you know, the Fed itself, this is the monetary uh, stimulus side of the, the equation, um, it issued $3 trillion in monetary stimulus in just three months last year, um, March through June, you know, in, in response to the, the, the crunch that the coronavirus pandemic uh, you know, affected in the economy and, and in the markets. Um, that exploded the Fed's balance sheet from $4 trillion to $7 trillion. And ever since then, it's still been consistently issuing additional stimulus currently to the tune of 120 billion per month. So the balance sheet is now pretty much at $8 trillion. That's nearly a full 10X from where it was before we headed into the great financial crisis back in uh, 2008. So that's just 12 years ago, and yet it's increased 10X in, time, in size. So um, I think I know what your answer is gonna be, Danielle, but is the stimulus really and truly helping or is it creating longer term costs in the form of asset bubbles, inflation, wealth inequality, et cetera, currency devaluation that outweigh the short term benefits that folks are crowing about right now? Um, so all of the things that you just mentioned are a fact of life. They are, they're an intended consequence. There's nothing unintended about the consequences of a tenfold increase in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. The, the thing is, if you look at the Fed's charter, if you look on the Fed's on the Federal Reserve Board's main page, just Google Federal Reserve Board, click it, pull up the first page, and you're going to see that that the Fed is duty bound to make monetary policy, quote unquote, in the public interest. We know right now that people buying homes are being harmed. We know that the key driver now that the reopening has occurred, so we don't have this massive exodus anymore. People are not trying to get out of cities. In fact, we're seeing growth in New York City increase. So we know that now the key driver to runaway home price inflation is Federal Reserve policy, such that they are doing, they're making monet, monetary policy in the opposite of the public interest. And because we're seeing the 10-year Treasury benchmark yield go under 1.5%, even as mortgage-backed securities have begun to lose money in the open market in anticipation of the Fed tapering its mortgage-backed securities purchases. If you can have a treasury rally at the same time that you have MBS begin to lose money for investors in that asset class, that tells the Fed unequivocally it's time to taper mortgage-backed securities purchases, period, end of story. All right. Uh, I want to get into that tapering in, in just a moment. I also want to talk about the, the CPI, too. Um, let me just ask this question first before we get into the details. Um, what are the limits to central bank stimulus? Um, you know, what stands in the way of the Fed just continuing to do more and more and more? You know, are, are there are there limits of reality that begin to creep in that make continued Fed stimulus um, impotent or can they really do this for a lot longer, you know, in terms of our lifetimes? Uh, can they do it for long enough that it doesn't really matter? Well, in the immediate in, in the immediate term, two people stand in the way of unlimited, unfettered QE, and that is Elizabeth McDonough, the Senate parliamentarian, and Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia. 
And I'm, I'm not trying to be cheeky or political. It's just that unless there is massive continued stimulus spending on the fiscal front, the Fed is going to have less monetization effectively to conduct in the open market. If they don't issue the $4 trillion that was anticipated before the Senate parliamentarian said, you know what, I'm gonna to stick to the, to, the, to the rules. You cannot use reconciliation, a 50-50 vote only to pass, a, uh, to, to eradicate the filibuster. And then Joe Manchin, who is the swing vote, not Kamala, not Kamala Harris, Joe Manchin is the moderate Democrat. He also came out against many of the things that the, 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 that those on the left side of his party are really pushing for. Without those two individuals, there's only so much that the Fed can print. And when markets begin to comprehend that the Fed is going to pull back from mortgage-backed securities purchases and that the Fed is going to be limited in terms of debt monetization, even as they're starting to hit some limits in terms of treasuries they can purchase, the public's not gonna be happy. Okay, great. And, and let me just try to simplify that for, for viewers here. So um, when we talk about the, the people that are on the congressional side, um, uh, we're talking here about fiscal stimulus, right? And you're, you're saying without in, in, you know, continued fiscal stimulus, that does limit what the Fed's able to, to, to do in terms of um, you know, its own monetary stimulus, because it actually needs to buy treasury debt. The, the Fed is printing up new money to yeah, buy it, treasury it needs, bonds. It needs widgets. The Fed's widgets to buy are treasuries. So yeah. if, you, if you look at it that way, and, and again, go back to your original question. This is fiscal and monetary policy combined. And that's what's made this so much more forceful than the post great financial crisis era. All right, well, this I think is really, really important to focus on and also really fascinating at the same time. So the, the Fed really needs the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the legislative side to play ball here. And we're seeing you know, some legislators begin to get cold feet saying, hey, you know, I'm getting a lot of pressure from my constituents that cost of living is going up, wealth inequality is going up, you know, whatever. Um, and so Congress is, is tapping the brakes here. Um, so uh, you mentioned earlier some of the, um, some of the consequences of, of all of this stimulus, and one of them is inflation, right? And today, uh, we got to read on uh, the latest uh, consumer price inflation numbers, and, and they, they, they jumped pretty big, right? They're grande. So your headlines up 5% year over year, your core CPI is up 3.8% year over year. These are, these are both multiples of the Fed's 2% target, whether you wanna look at it, X, in, uh, X gasoline and autos, I'm sorry, X gasoline and food or not. Um, I'll caveat that, I'll couch this by saying, uh, Bank of America puts out some outstanding data based on the credit card and debit card spending that they're seeing internally, it's proprietary data. And Bank of America is seeing good spending contract in the month of May. It anticipates that good spending, which is call it $2 trillion a year that, we, that we've seen $2 trillion of an input into GDP versus 800 billion for services. Put that in context. People aren't buying a new deck to put out behind their house. People aren't buying a second new car because they've moved out to the exurbs. People aren't, aren't, aren't purchasing a, a new set of furniture. So 
we're and, and sorry to interrupt Danielle, but that that's due to the the fast rise in price in all of those things uh, over the past well, year, correct? It, it is due to the fast rise in prices. It's also due to the fact that there's no more stimulus checks in train. So there's no more go-go juice. And whenever you hear, I mean, please raise a red flag whenever you hear the term a pent-up savings. If you want to look at the pent-up savings that's been accumulated over the past 12 months because of the government's fiscal stimulus, that is mainly in the hands of those age 65 and older. So it's not necessarily going to be pumped into the economy going forward. And I think that's what people need to distinguish because the talking heads they, they, they weave such a great narrative together, but they don't give you the details. And it's the details that matter the most. But in May CPI, what we saw was 52% of the May CPI increase was due expressly to services spending tied to the reopening. That will not necessarily continue going forward. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one of the economist things real quick, and I'm gonna speak out of the other side of my mouth and go back to the public interest what is rising, we're beginning to see pickup, is rental inflation. That is not transitory. That is sticky, and that hurts the most because that is, that is household's biggest budget item. So that part is, is, is going to be very problematic for the Fed going into 2022 if they don't, if they don't hit the brakes on these mortgage-backed securities purchases and try and slow down the runaway train that is residential real estate, which is feeding into massive increases in rent rates. Great, Danielle. I want to get into that and, and the tapering, potential tapering of the um, the MBS purchases in just a moment. But but just to continue to pull this thread just a little bit. So, Janet Yellen, uh, former Fed chair, now uh, head of the Treasury, um, she said that she thought that the CPI might reach three percent uh, in the latter half of this year. Sounds like we've already blown through that. Um, certainly not the first time that somebody associated with the Fed made a prediction that turned out to be wrong. Um, uh, but you know, she's also been underscoring the fact that she believes um, inflation to be transitory. Um, and you just mentioned that that you think parts of it are not going to be like like rental increases. Uh, I think you might believe there are some parts that, that will be transitory. I want to dig into that with you in just a second here. But I also want to talk about one other thing that she said. She said, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that a higher interest rate environment would actually be a plus for society's point of view. Do you agree with that comment? So when I wrote this book, I thought that I had all of the great Janet Yellen zingers and Lord have mercy, she's going to prompt me to have to write a sequel. <laughs> you cannot say anything. You can't, you, when, when an economy is as over indebted as it is, when corporate America's balance sheets are more levered than they've ever been, when Uncle Sam's pushing $30 trillion of debt that has to be serviced, when households uh, have homes and, and, and credit cards and auto payments, who could possibly even say out loud as a treasury secretary that higher interest rates would be beneficial to the economy? How obtuse can you possibly be? Well, um, I don't know. You know, we, uh, we, we keep hearing a lot of comments from these guys. They seem to always want to top with the, the, the last big zinger that they've said. So uh, last question on inflation before we move on. Um, uh, where do you see inflation going from here? Let's, let's look out for the next, let's say, year or so. Uh, do you see it getting worse? If so, how much? And, and also address the transitory part. How, how much of it do you see as being truly transitory? So 
in, in my latest weekly quill, I wrote that the biggest risk to the economy right now is the potential for stagflation because we are not going to see that another stimulus 4.0 to, to come right behind that $1,400 check. The $300 in additional uh, supplemental federal unemployment benefits begin to roll off this Sunday in certain states. Alaska, Missouri, Mississippi, I'm forgetting one. But through July 19th, 25 states are rolling out of these supplemental $300 a week. So we are going to see the wherewithal to consume take a hit. But by the same token, you've got 25 other states that are going to be staying in this program through Labor Day, which is when the supplemental unemployment benefits expire. And the reason I bring up the word stagflation is because there is a very real wage inflation problem percolating in the market. We have to bear in mind that's 60% of any given company's cost structure. So we're seeing copper, lumber's down 33% year to date, lumber. We're seeing many of these hot, hot, hot commodities from 2021, we're seeing these prices roll over. That's great news for companies because those are their input prices, but their biggest cost item is labor. And the massiveness of this fiscal backfire with these supplemental unemployment benefits, with teachers unions preventing moms from being back in the workforce until again, after Labor Day, the labor shortage, if that is acute enough through Labor Day, we're seeing teen unemployment plummet. We are seeing teens go, did they say $18 an hour? All right, <laughs> I'm going to stop being an entitled American for three months and I'm going to go make a bunch of money. So we are seeing supply and demand at work, but nonetheless, we have a lot of people in the labor pool who are choosing to stay on the sidelines or being forced by teachers unions to do so. And if there is wage inflation that creates a margin squeeze and we end up with earnings starting to decline, which nobody has priced into the market, that can be problematic. That can push inflation up heading into 2022 if this imbalance is not resolved quickly enough. And I think that this is what the one thing that keeps Jay Powell up at night is the potential for wage inflation to gain traction, even if it's going to ease off once we refill the labor pool. But you know, again, I'm, I'm sounding a lot like an economist today. And for that, I apologize. But we've seen three and a half million Americans retire early post-pandemic. A lot of them have, cho have chosen to do so because their stock portfolios and the, 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 the valuation of the residential real estate is so high that they're like, who needs to work? I'm out of here. Those people are not feeding back into the labor pool. It's not happening. So if the supply demand imbalance is not satisfied, then the Fed's going to have real trouble on its hands because it won't be inflation. It will be stagflation. Right, right. Um, well, this is such a fascinating time, and, and we'll be tracking it closely here because, you know, as you mentioned, um, the uh, unemployment, the, the supplemental unemployment benefits expire uh, nationally on Labor Day, although almost half states are ending them sooner, as you, you've already mentioned. Um, we also have the uh, national moratorium on foreclosures and rental evictions set to expire at the end of this month. Um, so it's going to be really interesting because, you know, both of those could be uh, quite deflationary um, in terms of, um, you know, people losing the, the guaranteed money that they were getting um, and people potentially you're, having to deal with losing their housing. Hunt. You're totally channeling Lacey Hunt. 
totally channeling Lacey Hunt here right now. So, um, so anyways, we've got a lot of these cross currents going on here, right? Um, so let's talk about the tightening now, right? So, um, you know, uh, CNBC, Steve Leisman, uh, who's got, uh, you know, a direct channel there to the guys at the Fed, sees them as laying the groundwork for a coming tapering campaign. He expects it to be announced in the early fall and maybe commencing around year end. Um, and my question to you, Danielle, is it sounds like, if I'm putting, I'm going to put words in your mouth here. It sounds like you think they should do it. Question is, can they do it? You know, we, we don't need to look that far back in time, back to the last taper tantrum. These markets have become so dependent. These asset prices you were talking about, the reason why so many of these older households retired early um, is because of asset prices being at lofty valuations, real estate being at lofty valuations. Do those risk taking a hit in another taper tantrum? The run-up that we've seen in home prices is very problematic for the Fed. And again, it's not just the, the, the investors in, in the mortgage-backed securities market who've already started to take a hit based on the, because markets look forward. It's more so what happens when you don't have the constancy of ultra-low 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. And we have seen, even as home prices have continued to appreciate, if you look at the Mortgage Bankers, uh, mortgage bankers Association, weekly purchase application data, we've round tripped. Purchase applications are slightly below where they were two years ago, pre-pandemic. So the, this is the worst time on record, according to the University of Michigan in terms of buying conditions. And the, the divide between selling conditions and buying conditions has never been as wide as it is. Everything is screaming right now that this is a bubble. If you were to ask CoreLogic or the Mortgage Bankers Association, you name the organization that, that tracks housing closely. If you were to ask any of these entities, how many, what percentage of purchases right now are investors being fueled by cheap money? They can't tell you. They can't get their head around what all cash buyers are and what investors are. But I can tell you, it's probably higher than 20%. And that's from discussions that I'm having with people in the, in the industry. So you have a huge, you have two sources of artificial prop underneath a very quickly inflated housing bubble. And I don't think people appreciate that. If there's a feedback mechanism between housing and other asset prices, then the Fed could have a problem on its hands because it will have difficulty with the tapering of the mortgage-backed securities prices, even as we see that potential risk being reflected in the 10-year yield, again, being south. Who, if I were, okay, I'm gonna ask you a question. I'm gonna play Socrates for two seconds. And if we go, okay. into, if we go into two minutes of overtime, so be it. I'm gonna play Socrates for a minute. Okay, Adam, the headline CPI is 5%. The 10 year yield went down. What say you? Uh, yeah. Hell, I mean, look, uh, I, I just don't think the country's gonna stand that kind of inflation going forward. It's not, but it's the last thing. I mean, if you were to be on a desert island for a year and pop back and see headline inflation that was year over year in May of 0.1%, May 2020, and today it's 5.0% year over year, and you were to come back 12 months later, you would be like, well, geez, is, is no. the tenure at 2%, 3%, 4%? No, right. down on the day. I mean, nothing makes sense right now. And that's why it's the most difficult investing environment that you could possibly describe. But I will remind all of your listeners, 
that there is a there there is a fallacy in the idea that gold prices only increase in inflationary environments. That's wrong. If you look back at your history, gold prices also increase when there is disruption in the markets, even in deflationary times. All right. So that's where I want to sort of end the conversation here. I want to get into sort of, you know, all right, where prices are headed, where might be good places to weather the storm, et cetera. Um, last question here on the policy side of things. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, Danielle. Um, so we make you emperor tomorrow of the Fed. Um, what policies would you embrace? Because the Fed seems to be in a very tough spot right now of its own creation, but uh, almost every decision is sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. How would you chart us ahead from here if you were in charge? So I would certainly uh, completely get rid of the mortgage-backed securities QE. That, that would be the first thing, I, and I wouldn't taper. I would rip the Band-Aid off. I would say we're doing more harm than good. Uh, and I would communicate that zero interest rate policy has been a failure, that it has time and again fed financial instability and that therefore that the Fed was going to establish a new floor of 2%, never again to be breached, such that the boom and bust cycles that have been fomented by zero interest rate policy are not repeated in the future. Mm -hmm. These would be very unpopular things to do. The 20% of US corporations that are zombies would go away but longer term, that would open up the, the universe for new entrants, for new job creators, for innovators. Heck, China's allowing more defaults right now than the United States. I know. <laughs> How does that look? So we have to get rid of the zombies. We have to make up for the sins of the past. We have to acknowledge that zero interest rate policy is a failure. And we have to get out of the housing market. If if, if I'm speaking for we, the Fed, now I'm going to have post-traumatic stress syndrome from those nine years that I did spend inside the Fed, so we should move off the subject. <laughs> okay, okay. But basically, you embrace the cleansing fire. Let's take our lumps, but let's get it over with. We'll be able to start at a sustainable baseline after that, rather than just trying to keep this whole house of cards propped up, um, which is- there, there, are, there are companies in America with strong balance sheets. There are companies in America that will weather what's to come. There are companies in America with pricing power. So there are strong companies out there and survivorship bias will be, will be a powerful force to contend with on the other side of whatever is to come. Yeah, and, and look, we could spend the entire uh, time talking about this, Danielle, but yeah, the creative destruction, which is you know, sort of a, a cornerstone of true capitalism, we, we've really just been, we've taken that out of the equation along with price discovery um, you know, over a decade ago with all the intervention that's been going on. Um, and you are advocating, and I'm right there with you, that, boy, if we reintroduce that, yes, it's going to be painful, but it's the kind of pain that uh, will be beneficial for us in the long run if we get all of this malinvestment cleared. Okay, so I don't want to give you post-traumatic stress anymore, so let's head to the markets themselves. We hope you've been enjoying this conversation with former Fed advisor Danielle DiMartino Booth. The interview continues over in part two, where Danielle explains why she's so concerned about the extreme steps that the folks running the Fed will likely take when the next crisis arises. She also shares her thoughts on which asset classes appear prudent given the highly uncertain environment now facing today's investors. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description below to this video or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. 
And if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who takes into consideration the macro risks and opportunities mentioned by Danielle in this interview, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Thank you.